Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Union with Christ is a little bit like the ocean. There's a lot of things that are a little bit like the ocean. So what I mean, nobody here is going to get to the bottom of the ocean anytime, right? But we can wade out in it, we can swim out in it, and we can find it of great value. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So first, as we try to define it, the one thing that I want to start off by saying is that union with Christ is a mystery. It is. It's a mystery. So for me to try to define it, it's going to be a little difficult. For anybody to try to define it will be difficult. And it is even referred to in, in old and even current writings as a mystical union, the mystical union that we have. Now, I want to pause right there and say, big alert. You hear the word mystical in our church and, ah, you know, woo, don't want to go there. But what I mean uh, by, a, by mystical, well, let me first of all say what I don't mean. I don't mean that there is some secret subjective way in which God reveals himself to us apart from his word and his spirit. I don't mean that. That's not what the kind of mysticism I'm talking about here. All I'm really saying is it's hard to define and it's mysterious. That's it. That's all I mean by the mystical union that we have with Christ. It's not something physical. It is, it is mystical. So um, I wanted to pause and just accentuate this point a little bit. So <clears throat> along with union with Christ, there are other kind of mysterious things, Uh, especially if you have kids or grandkids and and you try to explain certain doctrines to them and they kind of look at you and go, I don't get it. Or their their eyes are kind of wide. It doesn't make sense. There are many of these. So I just wanted to take a minute and get some class participation and just ask, what are some other mysterious things that are really hard to explain that we find in the Bible? The Trinity. The Trinity, try to explain it. And by the way, the egg doesn't work, does it? Because that shell, it's not fully God or fully egg, is it? That shell is not fully the egg, but yet all three members of the Trinity are fully God. So, very good. What's another one? The virgin birth. Try to explain that. Virgin conception, sure. Yes, sir? Something that I've been considering all week or for a couple weeks is Romans 5, and what we are not is in Adam. Those of us who are in Christ, we're no longer So in Christ is a mystery. That is also. Yeah. Yeah. So Darren said another mystery is the fact that, yes, Believers are in Christ, but another mystery is the fact that we are no longer in Adam. But as we understand that, that has huge implications for us. What's another one, Rick? God's sovereignty. He's in control of all things. There's no molecule that is rogue apart from his oversight, is there? What else? Predestination is a mystery. To be sure. What else? Dan. The attributes of God, the 
God himself, really, right? Absolutely. You guys are good. What else? The heavens. The universe. Yeah. Yeah. The Hubble telescope tells us like this much, right? For sure. I saw another hand over here. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Kathy. Yeah. Try to explain that. I, I don't get it. I just know it says it. God is sovereign, but he says you have not because you ask not. I don't get it. The whole of soteriology. Would you like to explain what soteriology is? The study of salvation. We don't use big words here. <laughs> oh, you learned it here. Okay. How about... Very good, though. How about um, ex nihilo? What is, does anybody know what ex nihilo is? Out of nothing, God created. Out of nothing. Uh, I probably can spell it, but I don't like to show off. Um, how about this? How about the eternality of God? I mean, remember the first time maybe that you thought of it or maybe one of your little children thought of, what, God has no had no beginning and has no end? How can that be? And I still, I, I can't answer that. I can't answer that at all. How about this one? The hypostatic union of two natures. What is that? The hypostatic union of two natures. That's Christ. The two natures that he's truly God and truly man. Remember R.C. Sproul corrected John MacArthur on that. You guys remember that? I'm just teasing. Truly God and truly man. So that just a little bit of, of what we're going up against here are things that are really too deep for our human understanding, but yet they're in the Bible, so we definitely want to look at them. All right. So again, to further complicate it, like I can make this really complicated, but I'm, anyway, I'll try not to. Because it's a mystery... Explaining a mystery is a little bit like explaining a joke, right? So if you have to explain it, it kind of loses something. So to understand and to comprehend the mystery is, um, well, it, it's a challenge for sure. So perhaps we should just follow John Calvin on this. And this is a great quote, okay? He said this, and he's speaking of union with Christ. He said, For my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery and am not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. Whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of it. Okay? 
So class over, let's just go have refreshments. Nah, I'm kidding. But I did promise that I would try to explain it. So last week I started with four metaphors that the Bible gives us to kind of demonstrate union with Christ. What are they? Vine and the branches. Marriage, husband and wife. Head in the body. Cornerstone and building or the living stones, however we do it. So those are four metaphors that the Bible gives us to kind of to give us a picture of, of who we are in Christ. So obviously all of those are visual metaphors, but they, they still really don't necessarily describe it. So let me try in two or three little examples here and big, big apology ahead of time. Sports analogies are about all I know. So here's another one. So I apologize in advance for that. Does anybody know who that is? The fridge. (laughs) William Perry was a football player for the Chicago Bears in the 1980s. He was a part of their 1986 Super Bowl champion team. Okay, and he did. He added that was his nickname was the refrigerator. Okay, not because he ate so much, although he probably did, but he was as big as a refrigerator. He was. At that time, today that doesn't sound that big, but back then, us old guys, this was big. He was, he was about 6'2", which isn't super tall, but he weighed 350 pounds. 350 pounds. He was, yeah, I mean, he was big. He was big. So he played nose tackle. And for those of you who know nothing about football, nose tackle is a defensive player that stands in the middle of the field and just clogs everything up, makes it difficult for the other team to run up the middle. So if they can't run up the middle, then they have to run to the sides, and then the defense can plan accordingly. Well, he was very good at just clogging up the middle. Okay, So the coach got a bright idea. The coach got a bright idea. He said, well, if he's really good at that... Imagine what kind of blocker he would be. So he put the fridge in the backfield as a fullback. Okay? That just means that he blocked for the running back who was behind him. Now, whenever the fridge hit the hole, what do you think happened? Well, he, 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 took, he took the defensive end. He took the tackle. He took the linebacker. He took the safety. Everything that was meant for the running back... The fridge took it, didn't he? And he paved the way, he cleared the way, especially in those short yardage situations for the running back to advance. So in a very real way, like I said, I apologize in advance for it, but in a very real way, isn't this what Christ does for us as believers? We can unite ourselves with him. We are united with him. And he clears the way for us. So what are some enemies of the Christian? Well, sin and death. He's absorbed all of those, the wrath that was intended for us. He took it upon himself, and he has cleared the way for us. This is kind of what Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden uh, with Christ in God. So in a very real way... The running back at the time, his life, or at least his abilities, were hidden in the fridge. Well, this is all good and well. 
So we've looked at metaphors to illustrate union with Christ. And I've now used you know, kind of a silly football reference. But still, what is it? What is it? So I'm going to go ahead and, and put up a couple of definitions that you have on your handout right here from people who are really smart. Louis Burkhoff was, um, he was a Dutch Reformed theologian in the 20th century, and he wrote uh, a very helpful systematic theology. And regarding this doctrine, this is how he defined union with Christ. He said, it is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. And I, I really like that definition. I thought that, that spoke very well. So it's intimate. It's personal. It's something near. The nearness, the oneness that we have with Christ. It's vital. It's living. He is our source. It is spiritual, as we said earlier. It's not physical. It's a spiritual union that we have between Christ and, and his people in virtue of what, where he is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness or their happiness, the joy and peace that they have. He is the source of it. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 talks about how Christ is many different things. He's our wisdom, our, right, our, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He is all of these things. Now, a little more scholarly, and you'll see it again on your handout, a little more scholarly kind of definition was, was given by Wayne Grudem. Uh, he, he also, he's a, he's a little more contemporary. Um, he wrote uh, another systematic theology that I would highly commend. It's definitely written for us uh, lay people because um, sometimes systematic theology can be a little intimidating. But he said this about union with Christ. He said, union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ, through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. And we are with Christ. So... To quote the Apostle Paul, he never referred to uh, believers as Christians, but instead he referred to them as being those who are in Christ. That's part of those 160 plus times that he addressed Christians. So here's another way of looking at this mystery. So believers being described as being in Christ means that, just like Darren was talking about, that Christ is our head. He is our representative, just as Adam was our representative when we were born. So we've been taken out of that realm of, of being him being our representative, meaning Adam, and put into Christ being our representative. Now, I think a, a little illustration of what it means to be a representative of a people, we can look to the Old Testament for this. So whenever, whenever Goliath was standing, I'll challenge any one of you people, you know, and everybody was scared except for one person, little David. David was not scared, and he said, I will fight you, Goliath. So in a very real way, even though it was a, 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 a war between two people, 
really they were representing their respective nations, weren't they? So Israel could have said that our hope is in David. And in a very real way, that's how Christ is our representative. If we are in him, he is our representative. So consider the words and phrases that Paul even invented to describe. As I understand it, and I don't know Greek, but as I understand it, uh, these phrases were not even around prior to Paul and Paul's letters. But he said, in Christ, we, we are crucified with him. We are buried with him. We are raised with him. And we are seated with him. This is Christ, our representative, right here. The last thing that I want to say about this doctrine, too, that I think it requires to really get as much as humanly possible your arms around it, is that I think it it requires a little bit of imagination. And what do I mean by that? I don't... I don't mean fairy tales and unicorns. That's not what I'm saying. But, but just even consider, even consider that word, the first part of it says image. So imagination. If we can get this in our heads and then to expound upon all of the benefits, I think it requires more than just um, the facts. You know, it's not just the facts. It, it's more than that. And it requires, I think, some imagination. So... so Kind of go with me on this, too. It's, this one might be better than the football. I, I, don't, I hope it is. So imagine yourself to be a young person. Now, some of you don't have to imagine it. Some of us do. But just imagine yourself being a young person. And let's just say that, let's just say that you were a big disappointment to your parents. I mean, they gave you grief your whole life. And guess what? They gave, you gave them grief, they gave you grief, it, just, it was just not a good relationship. And one day, you were in the attic, and you uncovered this old trunk, and you opened this trunk up, and inside the trunk, you, you found some files, and inside those files were documents, and there were pictures, and just some, some relevant information, and guess what? You opened those files, and what did you find? Well, you found out that you were stolen at birth. Yeah, you were kidnapped. So those people weren't really your parents. You open it up and you say, wow. You find out that your dad is a Nobel Prize winning physicist and a professional basketball player. (laughs) And then you find that your mom is a world-renowned surgeon and humanitarian. And you think, I knew it. I knew it all along. I knew something was different about me. Well, in a very real way, isn't that all the riches that we have in Christ Jesus? That's a little bit of a picture that I think. But, but here's the thing, too. It was always true of you, wasn't it? It was always true, but not yet revealed until you saw it. Until you saw it there. So that's what I want us to try to think about as we think about this mystical union that we have with Christ. Pondering, pondering these realities. Okay, so that, that's the best that this broken vessel can do in explaining what union with Christ is. Um, for further study, 
Um, I'm not sure. Talk to Dan Gelock, maybe. I don't know. Um, as I said, because we cannot reach the bottom of the ocean doesn't mean that we shouldn't swim out into it. So the second point that I have, and you, on your handout you see it, that continuum. So we're going to talk about that. Eternity and how every aspect of our... Yes, sir? Okay. We know that, Joel. <laughs> yes. I would think so. Or we are, we are predestined to become, be conformed to his image. Yeah. So we are already, but we're not yet. Yeah. Yes, sir. Dan. Yeah, that's good. Did everybody hear that? Good, because I don't think I could say pejorative again. All right, so union with Christ is rooted in eternity past and expands to unity, uh, eternity future. Okay, so to lay a foundation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put another quote up here. And this quote is by John Murray. John Murray was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 20th century. He wrote, uh, he, he also taught at um, Princeton, and he helped start Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, he wrote a very helpful book, which I would highly commend to everyone, called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And you'll hear a little bit of that language as we, we talk here this morning. But anyway, he said this about the breadth and the depth of the doctrine of union with Christ. He said, quote, quote, all right, union with Christ has its source in the election of God, uh, the Father, before the foundation of the world, and it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. The perspective of God's people is not narrow, it is broad and it is long. It is not confined to space and time. It has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two foci, one the electing love of God, the Father, in the councils of eternity, and the other glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. The former has no beginning and the latter has no end. That's the vastness of this. This isn't just a point in time. This expands for all of eternity. So as you have on your handout, um, I wanted to to demonstrate it by by using a continuum here. So our union with Christ, the the first thing that we know is that... Can anybody see that? It says chosen in Christ. Does it not? It says eternity past. Sorry. Thank you. So we go from eternity past to the life of Christ. The Bible speaks much about the life of Christ and our union with him during his life and death. Then we see 
Then we see redemption applied. And then lastly, we see our final glorification. So let's look at these four points. The first one, we are chosen in Christ. This one isn't hard. We've been studying Ephesians. And Ephesians 1.3 tells us, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this, of course, pertains to our election. Um, But here's a question. How can God place us in union with him when we don't even exist? Another mystery, right? Dum, dum, dum. Nothing is too hard for God. To answer that question at least a little bit, um, the church in which I grew up, uh, there was a, a, a special number that was sung by a young woman that went something like this. It was, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Okay? Not a bad song. But let's take it, let's use that template and take it further. Let's say that in eternity past, before the world was ever formed, we were on God's mind in a very real way. In a very real way. He had already placed us in union with Christ. That's how far back it goes. Fast forward now. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm sorry. Fast forward here now to the life of Christ. So again, we still haven't yet existed, have we? This is, this is 2,000 plus years ago. This is the life of Christ. But still in God's thoughts, he thought of us as belonging to Christ. And everything that Christ did for our benefit, he thought of as being ours. So for instance, Christ's obedience was our obedience. Otherwise, we don't have justification, do we? We must have that imputed righteousness to us. So, let's see if I can go find it. Okay, so Romans 5.19, to support this, we say that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, God looked at Christ's obedience as if we had obeyed. You know, again, to, to quote a catchy little phrase uh, that I remember growing up, we would say that justification is, is just as if I'd never sinned. Kind of a catchy little phrase, but it really doesn't tell the whole story, does it? It's really just as if I'd always obeyed. That's pretty cool. Okay, so Christ's death, so his obedience was our obedience. Christ's death was our death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So as Christ died, he saw us as having died, meaning our old man, that old man in Adam. God also thought of us as having been buried, having been raised, and having been seated with him in the heavenly places. Does that sound like Pauline language there? Buried with, raised with, seated all with Christ, in union with Christ. So all of these glorious aspects of our redemption were accomplished 2,000 years ago, before, um, before we ever even existed. 
These were all accomplished. So in the councils of eternity past, in the life of Christ, and now that brings us to, I'll go back here, I guess. So that third part. So the third part is, is what we would say is now. Now, or in this life, in, in these few years that we're here. So we say that redemption was applied. So all of us here have been physically born, right? Obviously. We're all here. We're all breathing. And it is obvious um, by a whole host of things. But although everything was already accomplished for us in Christ, as I mentioned, in eternity past, during his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, everything was accomplished. Christ had these things stored up for us in heaven, waiting to be applied. So here's what I mean. We were not born with these being applied, were we? All of us were born how? We were born in Adam, in sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And of course, uh, Ephesians 2, we were once dead in trespasses and sins. But then we see in Ephesians 2, 4, we see this but God. And this is the unveiling and the unfolding and the application of our redemption right there. But God being rich in mercy. He loved us with the love with which he did. He accomplished our redemption by now applying all of those benefits that he had stored up for us in union with Christ and applying them. Okay? And applying them. So what are some of those aspects of our redemption that were applied to us? Uh, Ephesians 2.5. I'm not going to ask you to quote it, but can anybody tell me what you think that might be? No. Regeneration. Regeneration. He had united us with him in regeneration in that living, vital union, given us a new heart, put in a new heart. We were given new life by the Spirit of God. So Ephesians 2.5 says, we were made alive together with Christ. That's what it says. What else? What, else, what other aspect of our redemption is applied when we see but God? Justification? Romans 8.1, can somebody quote that? There's now no condemnation for those who are, how? In Christ Jesus. In eternity past? During Christ's life? No, now. As it is applied now, regeneration gives us a new heart by which we can believe, and therefore we are justified by works? No, we're not justified by works. We're justified by grace through faith. How about adoption? Adoption. So he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1.5. This is another benefit of Redemption applied to our, to our account on our behalf. We are no longer in Adam. We're no longer a member of that family. We're a member of a new family. We're, we are 
the brothers of our elder brother, which is Christ Jesus. We are united with him in that way. And of course, naturally, our sanctification, which is that what we're talking about so much, that already but not yet tension that we live in, that we are growing more and more into conformity with him. So as it's applied today in this life, we are sanctified in Christ. We abide in him, John chapter 15. We receive the necessary nourishment that we need in Christ, and therefore we become more like him. So redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus, stored up in heaven, applied to us by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we fast forward again to our glorification, our final glorification, I should say. So I think this is another underutilized um, doctrine as well. I don't, I don't know that I've heard a whole lot of sermons um, in my lifetime about our glorification. But what a, well, not to, not to sound silly, but it's glorious. Our glorious glorification. It really is. So what I want to say is that in a very real way, this, this already not yet theme is, is um, ever present. But in a very real way, we are already glorified. Does everybody here feel glorified? Joel does. But in a very real way, our glorification has already been inaugurated. Okay? I'm going to get to the right passage here. Okay? Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You hear in redemption applied here? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. Not glorifies, glorified. As I understand it, this is the aorist tense. I really don't know what that means. But it means it has happened. It's past tense. So I guess I do know kind of what it means, but... This is something that has already happened, or at least been inaugurated. Okay? It's not yet fully consummated. And as Marilyn said, okay, another mystery. So we await. So what is Romans 8 prior to this kind of talking about? It's talking about creation, right? Creation is groaning, awaiting what? Awaiting what? Adoption, adoption. Uh, they're, they're, they're eagerly awaiting their, creation's awaiting, it's groaning, awaiting its redemption. Isn't that kind of weird to think the trees are groaning and earth is? But it's, it's true. Everything's been affected by the fall. But in Christ, we have redemption, not only us, but creation does. So that's, that's just kind of a picture of us. We are awaiting our final Glorification. So other evidence that this has been inaugurated, we see in Ephesians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.6, Paul speaks of the believer as being seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is position. That's our position in Christ. 
So that's evidence of what has already happened to us regarding our glorification. So that's, that's glorification. So this has been a flyover of eternity past to eternity future. And then every aspect of our redemption in Christ Jesus, meaning in union with Christ Jesus. So I mentioned I only had two points. So I'm going to pause right there and just say, does anybody have any questions or comments? Dan. Yeah. Dan said, it's amazing how much faith we must have to believe all this. But guess what? He gives us that faith. Yeah. How can you know it if you can't prove it? Yeah. Yeah, we have to attach. That's right. Absolutely. Anything else? Yes, sir. Mike said he's glad he can't explain it all because that might just lead itself to pride. And that may in of itself keep him out of really believing it. Really, right. Then we would have the mind of God. But we have the mind of Christ. Right, right. Anything else? All right. Complete in Christ. Yeah. Complete in Christ. Absolutely. If we have Christ, do we have everything? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So if all this has already been accomplished for us and applied to us by our union with Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, applied by faith, how should we live? I want to show you a couple of things here. Okay, How, how then shall we live? So should we live in Christ? Should we live in Christ? Does the Bible speak of living in Christ? It does. It does. It does. I want to show you a few things here, and I hope you can see it. I hope I can see it. Can anyone see that? Can you guys see that back there? Okay, I'm seeing. Okay, so in what way are children to obey their parents? In the Lord. 
Ephesians 6.1, is it? Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Okay. In what way are wives to submit to their husbands? By their own strength, because we're so great? As unto the Lord. As to the Lord. All right. In what way are believers to be strong? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Philippians 2.1. In what way are believers to be encouraged? Be encouraged in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, act this way. In what way are we to rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. In what way are we to agree? Agree in the Lord. In what way are we to stand firm? Philippians 4.1, stand firm in the Lord. All right. In what way are we to live a godly life? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In what way are we to have good behavior? In Christ. In what way are we to work hard? That's right. We work hard. Romans 16, 12 says to work hard in the Lord. And is it Colossians that says as unto the Lord? So in the Lord and unto the Lord. We could just apply that to everything, couldn't we? And we're to be made confident. There it goes. So we're to be made confident in the Lord. To be made confident. So union with Christ is a mysterious truth, right? But it has some very practical applications to it. Absolutely. I'm going to close right here with the second half of that first quote of John Murray, and I probably should put them together, but I, this, is, this is great. So he asked this question. He says, why does the believer entertain the thought of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and ad- adversities of the present? Light momentary afflictions are preparing us, Right? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in hope of the glory of God? Answer, it is because he cannot think of past, present, or future apart from union with Christ. So I thought that was a good summary of, of what we've, we've discussed today. So, got a minute or two? Is there any other questions or comments? Marilyn? That was so big, I don't even think I can repeat it. But Marilyn just says she's, she's still learning this, right? Still learning to a... To a yeah. 
right? Well, that's one thing to know it in our head. It's a whole other thing when persecution or trial or hardship or difficulty or criticism or anything like that comes. We, get, we definitely get lost on the way. Yes, sir. Christ is many things, right? He's, he's not just our Savior. He is our Lord. He's also our, yeah, very good. Anything else? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we come again to you in the name of Christ. And we praise you, God, for all of the glorious benefits that we have in him that have been applied to us. We have no cause for boasting, none, and yet we boast. Yet we are not a humble people, a meek people, as we ought to be. I pray, God, that the the vastness uh, would would weigh us down and consider, um, help us to consider your superiority, your supremacy to our own, to our own abilities, to our own thoughts, to our own goodness and righteousness. I pray that you would help us to see who we are in Christ Jesus and that, God, should we we ever feel as if you are not thinking of us, let us be reminded that you have thought of us for all of eternity, those of us that are in Christ. So, Father, we praise you. Now we enter this time of, of worship, and we do pray that, Um, our singing, the preaching, the ministry of the word this morning, all things that we do this morning would be pleasing unto you and would stir up our souls that we would love you more and share you more with others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.